I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Arts Cafe before a live audience. And this live audience, though small, is a hearty, happy live audience, also balancing plates of food. But I'm going to ask them to indicate their presence by putting their hands together. Wow, you produced an impressive sound. I'm joined here before that live audience that you just heard and that we can now just sort of assume is there by Bethany Swan, writer, creative collaborator, fourth-year PhD candidate in the English department here at Penn, whose research focuses on the intersection of Asian diasporas and contemporary poetry and poetics, and who has recently been writing a chapter-length essay about how diasporic modes of knowing and being in Don Mee Choi's DMZ Colony challenge assumptions about the so-called subject of lyric reading and who is currently the regional co-chair of Kundaman Northeast. And by Jonathan Dick, a doctoral candidate in English here at Penn, specializing in 19th and 20th century literature and literary criticism, whose dissertation is about how we narrate environmental and social transition and why certain figures of speech like the pathetic fallacy are treated by aesthetic objects and cultural criticism as an obstacle to it. And who here with us today is participating in, we think, his fourth episode of Poem Talk and by Kate Colby, a Boston-born poet who lives in Providence, Rhode Island, a longtime friend of the Writer's House and one of the co-teachers of Modpo, our open online course, author of a number of books of poetry, nine, I think, to be exact. Among them, I Mean, 2015, and The Arrangements, 2018, and a new, new, new book, I think really new as if this recording, called Reverse Engineer, published by Ornithopter Press, about which Ray Armantrout, in an ecstatic statement, has said, quote, thinking about the self and the universe, we tie ourselves in knots. A poem may be such a knot. Kate, hello, welcome back. Thanks so much. So happy and excited for you about this new book, which is wonderful. Congrats. Thank you. And that is ecstatic, that praise by Ray, but it is a little, it is a little Colby-esque, you know, tying yourself in knots and all. How does it feel to be praised as tying yourself in knots. I mean, it's right on, and it's right arm and trout, so it's kind of a, a double double whammy of a flattering It's statement. the knot talking to the knot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, I, I feel you're so good at this, sorry to up the ante here, but you're so good at poem talk that I feel like it's our eighth time doing it or something. <laughs> I think it is for, and I think yeah. the fun thing is if you go back, every time I'm here, I do something different, like in terms yeah. of my research, and it's really embarrassing, actually. Or Oh, meaning the nice. intros are all like, they're all, this they're all, month, yeah. his dissertation is about... Yeah. I think 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. But you know what? It's fine. I mean, a podcast is not DOA. It's just going to be d- dynamic and evolving. And every time you listen to Jonathan, there's something new going on in that head of yours. That's a nice way of putting <laughs> what can it. You, Thanks, Al. <laughs> I don't know if it ended quite perfectly, but um, I think also we feel we've been in conversation a lot because one semester we taught a class together and there, we were just constantly playing off each other's ideas. And that's just, a, that was a marvelous experience. So I, I, I shall never forget that as an intellectual experience. So, And Bethany, this is your second is. poem talk. And tell us about the first one. Boy, was that good and fun. Oh, I had a great time. So we were looking at um, Sawako's work and it was... Sawako Nakayasu. Nakayasu. Yeah. And um, yeah, just a really rich conversation around some of the imagery. So yeah. wonderful. It was good. It was fun. It was really good. Well, we four have gathered here today to talk about a poem by Wa Win titled Long Light. The poem has been collected in the book published by Wave, Red Juice, Poems, 1998-2008. A recording of the poem comes from Wa's Pen Sound author page and was performed during a reading at the St. Bonaventure Visiting Poets Series in March 22nd, 2016. So here now is Wa Win reading her poem, Long Light. Long Light. Long light, Super Bowl Sunday, 2006. Do to escape the present. Lying on a recycled plastic outdoor carpet near profuse clover and the water meter. In the dream, Heather marries a heart surgeon in heaven. We need to empty the ash from our chimenea peely bark on the sycamore tree, waxing gibbous moon. There are rhetorical happenings written directly on a flower. Can love everyone? Jonathan, how do the parts, the stanza sections, interoperate? I mean, one way to read this, obviously, is extremely paratactic so each one is a new scene we were just talking about ray armitrout this one reminds me in the sense of the way ray armitrout handles her sections often by putting a asterisk or something is that the right way to read it is obviously not the only way but is that how you read it uh that's not how i read it and and for the audiences parataxis is a rhetorical feature in language that refers to things said one after another without any grammatical connectives. Or in a quotation that I really like, parataxis like history is one damn thing after another. And we can we can read long light like that insofar as each clause seems to be separate from the clause that both precedes and follows it. But I'm actually thinking about this poem more as an occasional poem, which is to say a poem that's written in commemoration of a specific event, the event named in the first line, um, Super Bowl Sunday 2006. There are certain points across long light that orient the perspective at a particular moment in time, um, a moment in which the speaker is lying, for instance, outside, looking at the water meter, looking at various things that sort of catch their attention. So I think you you could read it paratactically, but for me, it's all one continuous narrative um, commemorating this moment on Super Bowl Sunday where the speaker collapses outside and sort of looks at the things around them. That's at least how I was thinking Very about cool. It. No, great way to start. Bethany, do you want to respond to that? Did you, did you read it at least some of the time as a paratactic separate sections? 
different scenes? You know, actually, just listening to why read it, um, I heard something that I hadn't noticed before. And I think that the way she sort of, she sort of like almost added um, Long Light and then Super Bowl Sunday 2006, it almost like occurred to me as an enjammed title, the whole thing. And the way that I formally read this poem, at first I looked at it and I was like, oh, there's a quatrain and then there's a, some some sort of like couplets. Um, but is it a sonnet? Because it is 13 lines, it's missing one. Um, to me, long light is being deflected here. And that's evident formally in some of the ways that there are sejuras. Um throughout the the kind of like formal units of the poem stanzas and so I liked kind of thinking about like where is that light refracting or where where is it deflecting um what is interrupting that that light and so I like what you said about the kind of discursiveness um of paratactic reading Kate the our two colleagues here who your your predecessor speakers have just done what I love about spending a lot of time on a poem because if you're trying to write or talk about an entire book or a range of years of poetry as this book is red juice you're never really going to get to do what we've already done in the first five minutes i mean basically what what's been said is um especially what bethany just said is this poem does formally what it's saying and that's amazing that we got to that so quickly. And I would say, I would insist to anybody listening to this thinking, oh, those academics, they sure do that form stuff. I actually would insist that it's not academic at all. It is the way that one would read and experience a poem like this, no matter how experienced you are. Anyway, I'm turning to you for another thought on this. Um, it, it really it really is trying to do formally what it's saying, and what would that be? What would it be saying, therefore? Well, I'm going to read it atomically. Mm -hmm. um, light is not, in fact, continuous, even though it appears that way. It consists of photons, which are discrete packets of energy. And the poem's form replicates that effect of both continuity and discrete moments and she moves back and forth between images of timelessness and location in time and that's all wrapped up in the in the title as well which um you know uh, uh, captures how the poem exists at wildly different temporal and physical scales so i didn't i should have looked up long light in my you know dictionary of physics but is it a what does it refer to in a, in a physics sense? Well, it light is not, in fact, continuous. So it can appear to extend as in time and space. But in it is made up of smaller pieces. And I also think in the poem, it refers to the long shadows of winter. And we're located here on Super Bowl Sunday. We know what time of year it is. Um, the light lengthens as we perceive it so um we want a poem that does the painterly thing of suggesting uh vision imagery but we also really need a poem that talks about duration of time 
So, Jonathan, would you just point out a few durational references here, other than the fact that Super Bowl Sunday is always incredibly long? <laughs> that was meant to be as a joke, but really not. Well, I mean, I will say something briefly about Super Bowl Sunday, and then I'll say something about the form that, that sort of creates this illusion of length. I like the Super Bowl Sunday reference also because it's such a nice joke insofar as Super Bowl Sunday 2006 was the 40th Super Bowl, the Roman numeral of which is XL. And so right in that first line, we have long light XL. It, there's like an embedded joke there that I think would be, would be, <laughs> did you find, did it find I know, like, I really um, like that. I, um, <laughs> I tried to figure out whether the Steelers versus the Seahawks no. <laughs> was relevant. It was the first Super Bowl, I think, in Detroit. Wa is in Canada. I'm not sure that Wa cared much about the location, so I didn't do anything. It's just with like that, an XL. I, it just seems XL. like a funny joke. And okay. um, but, anyways, the, the thing that I would say about length is one thing that I, I was quite interested in this poem is um, its its assonance and its consonants or its repetition of particular vowel or consonant sounds. You know, Super Bowl Sunday is one of those examples. But the big one for me is you know, in the dream, Heather marries a heart surgeon in heaven. These you know, repetitive sounds increase the length of a line, even when the line itself is relatively short or truncated. Uh, and so, you know, when it comes to when it comes to marking length at the level of form, that is one way in which it happens, um, because the poem is is itself quite skinny. Um, I'm I'm technically avoiding the question you're asking, but that's that's yeah, you have <laughs> every right to do that. This being your fourth poem talk, it's doing this it so much has just helped me avoid the avoid question my questions. Yeah, because. Yeah, I mean, let the record show that I, I barely have a mark on this page. I have not prepared any questions, nor do I ever prepare questions, and nor do the poem talkers expect to have questions prepared in advance. Right, Bethany? So here's my question to you. Um, we need to empty the ash. We is a very domestic we, it feels like, and the poem actually is amazingly domestic. There's stuff happening around the house. Is that right? And how does that help you with this fairly abstract idea of light having a duration? You know, I hadn't thought about the the juxtaposition between that line about emptying the ash from the chiminea and the long light. Um, but ash certainly like suggests the afterlife of a fire or the afterlight. Why would anybody of- put an ash in the chiminea? Is that... Is that a way of helping that plant? No. Is it that they be, they have a wood stove and they should not be putting the ash in a potted plant? What's going on there? Something's malfunctioning. I think the ash is central to the poem in that is it's an object that's that barely exists in the presence. It's the aftermath or the upshot of a fire in the chiminea, but here it also betokens a future in which it will be emptied. And it it echoes there's a lot of afterlife in the poem. There's heaven. There's the evanescence of the flower that, you know, will still carry these marks of rhetorical happenings. And that an afterlife is both a thing that comes after life and a life after death. It's kind of a two-way word that that holds so much of, of the activity of this poem, which keeps two very different kinds of balls in the air at all times. Wow. Jonathan, what are you thinking? You're obviously thinking of something. Uh, I'm actually thinking about something that Bethany mentioned earlier, which is like speculatively what would happen if we treated this poem as a sonnet. 
Um, you know, it does have 13 lines, while it does write sonnets elsewhere uh, with 13 lines. Um, and, and, you know, speculatively, if we want to run with that, this line would be where the volta in the sonnet hits. And, and for readers, the volta is the moment of a sonnet, either English or Italian, in which the argument switches or we become more philosophical. Um, and it's making me sort of conscious of the fact that after this turning point, when something happens to the ash in the chimney, which I don't think is actually a plant, I think it's one of those like, uh, I, I, I almost described it in a way that I don't think would be conducive to people listening to this in the future because I think it might be a bad joke. But it looks like a gourd and it's like a, a like an outdoor fire pit. And so, you know, something is being emptied oh. out of there. Well, that helps. Yeah, and there's a... T- Terracotta. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're just like okay, killing so a, it's not a, a plant. They're not ash. killing a plant. Um, but, okay. you know, there's a fire that has ended. Um, and, and, you know, the, there's a moment here that something is happening to sort of change the context of the poem. And I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm running with Bethany's suggestion and, and wanting to notice how after this moment, the poem becomes increasingly philosophical. We move from like grounded descriptions about, you know, the place, the time, the space to questions about like love, which sneaks in unsuspected with like a uh, a particular rhetorical force. And it then also like 80% toward Hallmark Cardi, even though it doesn't because the grammar is all off. So mm-hmm. we don't know what, what the agency is going on there. Can I ask any or all of the three of you, let's go back to Super Bowl Sunday, because what's happening here is that there is an escape from presumably Super Bowl Sunday, and from that indoorsness, which is really oppressive for those of us who've done Super Bowl Sunday earnestly. It's an, it's a long indoor day on a short day of the year, and it's cold, and it's going to be cold in Canada. But there seems to be a lot of outdoorsness. Maybe the outdoor carpet is not indoors or even in a porch, but outdoors. And then we have the chimenea, we've just learned, is probably outdoors. And then, of course, the sycamore, which is a London plain, which is a city tree, an urban tree, outdoors. So am I on to something at all, Kate? Uh, the do is in quotes, do to escape from the present. What's happening? Is there a motion outward? Well, I think there's a, a indoor-outdoor binary, certainly, Um but the whole thing puts me in mind of Zeno's paradox where we have this suspended moment with all this incremental movement inside of it. Um, and it does move between indoors, outdoors, um, you know, momentary information and eternity. Um, Heather, I, I just assumed Heather was Locklear. <laughs> and oh we're in some goodness. kind of soap opera. Wait, you have to explain that reference, though. Well, I can't like really. Super, um, super soap opera maybe like, star uh, of the 80s, 90s. Melrose Place. Yes. Some show like that. But I think she was also on show. soap operas. A cop show, too. I could be wrong. It, that's a question for uh, one day. Um, yeah. In the dream. So not Heather's dream, but someone else's dream of Heather. Well, we don't know. If yeah. Heather's having the dream or the poet is having the dream. But that's ha-ha, right? That's just funny. It is, and is it? It is marrying a heart surgeon. That's like everybody's mother's dream, I think. Sure, but there's some perceptual confusion in here. Who's having the dream? Where is the world? Which of us are in which worlds? And if we don't read it paratactically, Jonathan, 
then there may be a connection between the urgency, the hidden urgency of this ha-ha, not-so-funny, you know, marrying a heart surgeon, maybe because there is a heart problem, and then there is this sudden need to empty the ash. Mm -hmm. You know, those things are connected in a kind of beautiful and haunting way, no? Well, I mean, it goes back to a point that you mentioned earlier, which is that domesticity sort of sneaks into this poem in its middle, but, you know, between um, either extremely ordinary reflections about, you know, the place and, and the Super Bowl Sunday uh, and, you know, extremely philosophical meditations about what can be written on a flower, which is something quite interesting to think about that I'm sure we'll return to. Um, but one thing that I, I sort of started to think about with respect to Heather and the heart surgeon is that in some respects... <laughs> There's a there's a like a wish or desire in that moment for someone who can heal a heart, which gets brought back at the yes. end yes. Um, when love is questioned as something that people can have uh, that that people can have equally. And so you know Heather, who marries a heart surgeon, her heart's going to be just fine, but other people's hearts might not. And I think that that to me is a really um, that that to me is a way of grounding what would otherwise be paratactic references and something that is you know fixed. Mm. Bethany, I'm going to ask you and Kate to listen to Hua read the poem and speak to how it sounds. Um, do we get any kind of hint as to how to read even some of the a little, slightly ridiculous lines, like what a dream will do can always be funny? And, uh, and the way the voice voices the poem. So let's hear it. Long light. Long light, Super Bowl Sunday 2006. Do to escape the present. Lying on a recycled plastic outdoor carpet near profuse clover and the water meter. In the dream, Heather marries a heart surgeon in heaven. We need to empty the ash from our chimenea peely bark on the sycamore tree, waxing gibbous moon. There are rhetorical happenings written directly on a flower. Can love everyone? Bethany, what's the tone of the reading, I mean? I mean, I think it's, I think it's speculative and I think that there's an earnestness that is sort of underscoring that question at the end and I noticed that the penultimate couplet there are rhetorical happenings written directly onto a flower um, that when Wa read that she slowed down and I think that kind of asking, like, what are the rhetorical happenings? And I, for me, rhetoric always implies an audience. And so what, what is that kind of, like, relationship? Um, how, how is that dynamic apparent even when it's not narrative or when it's not mm. overtly narrative or mm. explicit? Interesting. Kate, what's your response to the tone or to the reading? It has a meditative quality. The way she repeats the title feels like she's she's really working in and with a moment that she's forcing herself to stay within and i hear that in the reading that she's she, it, there's some kind of like a practice 
happening here where she's 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 experiencing a moment and all of the associative information that that comes with it mm. I guess we should turn to the rhetorical happenings and then the writing on a flower and then of course this question of love before I do that I want to just I I pick somewhat randomly from this collection from red juice from a poem nearby it's called drippy and I'm just going to read it to you at the risk of being such a terrible reader of Waugh's poem, but I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to ask the three of you just to hear some of the similarities in the shifts, the transitions, the domestic humor. It's going to be hard because you're not seeing the poem, um, and I'm reading it probably badly, so this will be fun. <laughs> Drippy. Drippy. What does this say about my emotional state? Cry at the joke about Kmart. Cry at the photo of the woman crying, baby born dead, held in her arms. Life penetrates life. I am freeform today, fermenting a loaf of bread. The oven is warm. I need to bake a chicken. Raining again. So you have drippy is the drippy of the rain, but it's also drippy of the crying. And then there's a crucial, for those who know Wah's work, there's this crucial traumatic originary experience of presumably a Vietnam-era setting of a baby in the arms of a woman. So there's all, all kinds of stuff going on. Who wants to start to react to that? That's a very similar strategy to, this, to our poem, I think. How so, Kate? Well, she takes very specific momentary information from her day and projects it onto life, uh, the world, um, humankind. So it, it, she, it becomes philosophical. She casts it out into, into the universe and the experience of, of her whole life and all of human life. And putting chicken in a poem is always hilarious. It's the funniest word in English, if and you ask K me. Kmart might be the second funniest. <laughs> it's up there. You know, like, so crying, not just emotional encounter crying, but also crying about all kinds of big things on a rainy day where maybe the dripping can dis can disguise your own crying. Anyway, Bethany, what do, you, what do you think about this? Can we start to generalize about what Wah does in a poem like Long Light? I think the line that stood out to me was, I am freeform today. Mm. And I, I think like that long light is also sort of benchmarking a kind of freeformness. And I like what you said earlier, Kate, about the way that Wa is choosing a moment to meditate on and not to, um, to kind of meditate in a way where all of the associative um, ambiance becomes part of that meditation and this urge to kind of like move to something else um, is kind of is sort of like reined in and I'm interested in the the kind of collage I think of associations and the way that both of those poems read read kind of against each other um, and 
Drippy, I feel like, has much more of a strong first person, <laughs> like mm, narrative, that's true, yes. um, assertive dominance. And so, yeah, I, but I'm interested in the way that choosing to focus on an event or to dilate on a happening or on the light, um, what that reveals in terms of affect. Jonathan, freeform, does this, does this get us to rhetorical happenings? Maybe. I mean, rhetorical happenings is such an ambiguous... I mean, no one can really agree on what rhetoric is, and historically people define it in very different ways. It means anything from persuasive speech to beautiful ornamental speech to effective speech to later in the 20th century how speech can be corrected. And so, you know, there, there, there are a lot of different ways. And we I guess... happenings next to rhetorical if that Yeah, well, it, this, right? is, this is where I was going. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really interesting about WISE is that for readers or for listeners who are maybe reading along with us, the poem has very clear formal markers in the shape of big gaps, for instance, between Long Light and Super Bowl Sunday, or Peely Bark on the Sycamore Tree and Waxing Gibbous Moon, um, or even the parenthesis in which written directly onto a flower is couched. But while when reading basically ignores all of these rhetorical happenings, and it creates a very different effect for the poem, like reading it versus hearing it, you get a very different sort of feeling. Um, the, the quickness with which she moves past a lot of these breaks almost dismisses them. Uh, there was something about hearing Long Light in the first stanza that the, the sort of domestic image made me, f the way that she read the domestic image made me feel like she was dissatisfied with it. Mm. And so these are all things that I think are unique to the act of performing mm. a poem. But, you know, I, again, I'm just avoiding your question. This is actually what rhetorical happenings mean. Or one of the ways that we can mean it's avoiding people's questions. <laughs> oh, that was such a good meta statement to get out of the problem. Kate... Um, it's one thing to assert there are, which is a very sort of uh, faux-passive way of constructing this line, there are rhetorical happenings. And then parentheses written directly onto a flower. What kind of writing is that? What strikes me about rhetorical happenings is it's pretty, I mean, it can be read as an oxymoron and to make a meta statement a poem is a rhetorical happening it's it's an it's an action that is taking place on the page and you know in some way in the world but not physically actually and the idea of writing onto a flower we you know we writers like to imagine that our words are immortal but a flower is so very mortal and is going to fade any moment. So it that that line there, there are rhetorical happenings written directly onto a flower, captures so much of the process of writing a poem and one's thinking about it. It's it's life in the world and its longevity. Longevity, that's the perfect word for this moment. So, Bethany and everyone, I'm going to say I feel some tension here, not among us, um, <laughs> in the poem, possibly among or between the we, the elements of the we, the people of the we, the peopling of the we. Um, there is something going on inside, and there is an escape. And that escape is the occasion for a poem. So re rhetoric does happen when it is going away from something on this late Sunday in January. And the last 
two lines, which we're going to turn to now, are a plaint, I think, maybe. I'm going to overread this, Bethany. And I, I think that there's a problem that has to be solved or addressed by the poet on this particular day, in this particular short day. And do is reminds us of all the things that people say about poetry in the negative. Like, what does poetry fucking do? It doesn't do anything. Poetry doesn't make anything happen. You want to do? Go back inside and the Steelers will win. Um, that's real. And what you're doing is not real. All right, I'm overreading that, but I want to get to the last line. The question is, what's the answer to the question? Um, if there is this tension, if I'm right about this escape, if I'm right about where writing happens, it doesn't happen inside on that particular day. It's going to happen between and among the things that one sees, thinks, dreams of, and worries about. I think peeling bark on the sycamore is something what... Sycamore and London Plains, they peel. I see tension here. I see tension. I also see urgency. Um, in the immediacy, we need to empty the ash from our chimenea. And I wonder... The to, stuff we have to do that we're not doing. Yeah, and there's something about... Um, the need for that to be clean or empty or that space to be open mm. um, that I wonder if that that sort of like emotion um, or urgency can apply to that last stand that last couplet can love everyone um, and I I don't think that there's a resolute answer and I think part of the play with rhetorical happenings is not about definitive questions and answers, but just about kind of meandering and not not resolving things. And so, um, can love everyone. <laughs> nice move there at the end. Kate, okay, can love anyone, everyone. Here's a question for you. If um, someone were to read this poem, maybe a student or, you know, some eighth grader that you know, would say, okay, I understand everything, but can you paraphrase that those last two lines? How would you do it? I can't, um, but I can observe and a won't. few things. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, it's your eighth creator who's asking. Yeah. Um, well, I, this poem has kind of an incorporative spirit. Uh, so it is most literally asking the question, can one love everything, even the ugly plastic carpet and the ash and the you know peeling the kind sycamore of junk of our lives yes but there's also a way to read it um as an inversion that comes off almost like a broken english and makes love a noun or a verb makes everyone potentially a noun or a verb so that it has, it, it can be read in so many ways that, that point inward, but also incorporate everything. That was abstract, but... No, it's not. It's what poems do. It's what, a po it's what poetry does. Yeah. And do is a key word here. Jonathan, your thought on this part of our conversation? I think you, you did convince me a little bit with the, um, the emphasis on do, which as an action word here is described as something that takes us out of the moment. Except it's um, in quotes. So. Yeah, and so that, that sort of ironizes it a little bit. But, yeah. 
you know, I guess I want to spin a different reading about the rhetorical happenings. The, the, the way that I first read this, and perhaps this was conditioned in some respect by the fact that I googled Long Light and read the author summary of that book, and one of the lines in that author summary, or maybe not just the author summary, the press summary, said that, like, this is a book of eco-poetry. And so perhaps it was conditioned by that, but coming to this last line in which rhetorical happenings uh, a word that sort of Kate nicely reminds us is something that we might say about a poem um, is here something that is not just written directly onto a flower, but seems to emerge it or emerge from it. And, you know, when we look back at the rest of the poem, the escape from that present, the turn away from the Super Bowl Sunday is all, you know, based around semi-natural imagery, outdoor carpets that are plastic, but also, um, you know, bark on a sycamore tree and a waxing gibbous moon. And so this makes me sort of want to think about you know, whether there's something eco-poetical happening here and whether, you know, against the claim, and, and for readers, Auden is the person who says that poetry does nothing. Against the claim that poetry does nothing, you know, perhaps there's something here about the way that poetry does something uh, for the environment. I don't mm -hmm. know if that is, is necessarily mm -hmm. something that um, this poem wants to say, but I don't mm -hmm. think poems want to say anything specific. So mm -hmm. I'm going to say that. I love it. Totally. Okay, final thoughts. Let's go, each of us, one more thing you wanted to say about this poem, but didn't have a chance to yet. Kate, do you have one? It's a sad poem, I think. Um, and Jonathan mentioning that the book was cast in light of eco-poetry made me realize that that long light happens at the end of the day um, in winter, and it, it, it has a longing to it. Long light in, in winter, it's slant light. It's not long in duration because there's less light, but it's no, a slant. Correct. I meant the, I guess I meant the long shadows, which the is long shadows, the inverse right. of light, what light casts. Um, but it, in both its specificity and its philosophical rigor, it's a very sad and longing poem to me. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, final thoughts? I think at the same time, there's, there's, I mean, I at least was also thinking about it optimistically we're reading this poem in oh god what day is it today like november 12th or something like that a, a day which is sort of two or three days before the clocks turn back making the light shorter but super bowl sunday is an event that happens in february as the days you know the short days of winter grow progressively longer and so there's something for me about you know this poem being on the cusp of a daylight savings kind of thing that also makes it vaguely optimistic um but I think I think it's 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 up in the air, um, especially with the last couplet uh, and and the ambiguity of its subject and the possibility um, for love, whether that optimism you know suggested by the day is actually something that can carry out into mm. everyday life. Mm. Thank you, Bethany. Final thought. Yeah, I think that just looking at this again, I'm really moved and interested by all of the, the abundance of images that are emergent or forms that are not whole or not complete. Um, so like the, the ash and like the waxing gibbous moon. Um, and I think that there's something in those forms that are broken or not, not complete or fragmented in some way um, that the poet is kind of trying to signal um, and I think it's significant the turn to, to those images um, instead of the, the neat kind of reparation 
um, of a dream world in which, you know, the heart surgeon um, in heaven and the kind of like reparation that that signals that Mm. cannot necessarily um, happen like in the present of this long light. Thank you. I, I I agree that it's a sad poem, and I agree that the love at the end is crucial, and I just want to riff for a second on those last two lines. It can mean, as Kate suggested, can, can one love everything um, in an almost um, William Carlos Williams, the world is full of junk and broken things, and I still can find something that is shining uh, there. And it is kind of a... Junkie, I mean, it is true that if you live in a high-end, high-rise, that you could have the recycled plastic outdoor carpet, but I think it's meant here. Um, there's a water meter, uh, there's the, there's the ash, there's, it's kind of like not, a, a, not a beautiful, and I think it's an urban place, and not a beautiful urban place. And that last line could be, can, is there something everyone can love here? Is love possible? Um, is there such a thing as love in a place like this? Um, and the escape has something to do with it because the Super Bowl is, at least for me, sorry, the equivalent of a recycled plastic outdoor carpet, and one cannot escape it. So one must find love where one can, and it's in that we. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend something or someone, some work, some book, some movie, some play, whatever that's going on that you like. Kate, do you have something you want to recommend? I do. Um, it's it's hard to choose which. I've been reading and writing about a bunch of novels recently, but I'll mention one I can't stop thinking about, which is Marlin Haushofer's The Wall. She's a mid-century Austrian writer and The book was uh, just re-released by New Directions, and it takes place in a imagined post-apocalyptic future, but it's very strange and beautiful. Perfect. Thank you so much. Jonathan, gather some paradise. I didn't know that we could do movies, and now I'm I'm up in the air about what I want to do, but I think I'll stick with my guns and offer the thing that I was initially going to suggest, which is Elif Botchman's Either Or. Uh, It's the sequel to her... Um, campus novel slash buildings remind the idiot and I just she has such a unique voice and it's such a pleasure to revisit these novels that are you know published about a young girl on the cusp of adulthood and also the cusp of the internet age like learning about herself by reading books I think it's it's quite good fabulous suggestion Bethany gather some paradise I feel like for me I have to go with um the poetry collection that I'm writing the most about right now, which is Don Michoy's DMZ Colony. And I feel like it's one of those collections that every time you go back to it um, and read a different section, you can see uh, her doing something like formally and also just, you know, conceptually um, groundbreaking and just recreating what poetics is and I feel so inspired by her work I that's feel like great it's keeping and me since going. you're writing about it it's even more special than otherwise that you would still praise it because the stuff we're writing about usually isn't that exciting that's so true yeah that's really the proof 
Okay, I have two. Uh, first is um, Dion Brand. There's a relatively new book of new and collected poems called Nomenclature, edited by Christina Sharp. There's a fabulous preface or introduction by Christina Sharp. And I just want to recommend one series of poems in this book, which is relevant to the poem we're talking about today, um, even though it is not, as it turns out, a poem of Canadianness, but so much of Dion's work, uh, Dion Brand's work, is, and this is a series of poems called Winter Epigrams. And my second is to hand a book over to Kate Colby. It's Reverse Winter by Kate Colby, and I wonder if you would pick a short poem and read it for us as part of my final word. Sure. Okay, thank you. All right. This is After Life, since we were talking about after life. Everything I think to say is never true anymore. The medium of thinking is thought. If all possible worlds exist and we're in the best one, will you be awake when I get home? The day we put the dog down, I felt my umwelt like anything, admitted by emptiness, accepting itself. Thank you, Kate. That's wonderful. Well, that's all the recycled plastic outdoor carpet we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House of the University of Pennsylvania right here and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guest, Jonathan Dick. Come on, let's hear for Jonathan Dick. (laughs) And Bethany Swan and Kate Colby. And Poem Talks directors and engineers, Paul Burke over there with the Phillies hat. Why are you wearing a Phillies hat? And Zach Cardner, who is the best at this. Do you have any applause left? And Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, I'll be talking with Divya Victor, Dag Wubchet, and Whitney Tretien about two poems from Doug Kearney's new book, or actually not so new book, but fabulous book, Show, S-H-O. This is Al Phil Reese. And I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.